0: You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you very much for joining us on this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Ebema. Today, my guest is E. J. Wyatt. She's the author of "Visiting with Love: Productive Activities for Memory and Elder Care Residents." Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure being here.
1: Where did you grow up?
2: Well, I grew up in in very, very South Texas in uh, the Rio Grande Valley. Migrated to Corpus Christi and and spent 20-something years there. And then in the year 2000, accepted a position with hospice in New Braunfels. And part of the reason I accepted the position at the time was my mother lived just 30 miles away. So I thought it'd be great to be closer to my mother because surely in her late 60s, 70s, she might need a caregiver. I got up here and uh, found out she had no need of a caregiver. She was perfectly fine and independent, but I still moved in and spent the last 20 years living with her.
1: So what was your role within that hospice?
2: I was Director of Education and Counseling. I'm an LPC, but I did a whole lot of community education, including dozens and dozens of workshops on advanced directives and end-of-life decisions.
1: I read somewhere that it was during that time in hospice that you you, you identified the existence of the hidden patients. To our listeners, if you're hearing this for the first time, the hidden patients are considered uh, just in short, unpaid caregivers and uh, without that support their health would deteriorate completely so talk to us what was your uh, discovery through
2: hospice you got to remember this is over 20 years ago and through my hospice patients i became aware of the of the difficulties of the caregivers the the people that were taking care of their loved ones even family, or friends, and that we weren't always addressing their needs as much as we could. And so at that time, I developed a um, training to do support group training and conducted that training with a church in New Braunfels. They gave me two volunteers, and I took them through how to establish a support group just for caregivers. But the one important thing is 20-something years ago, when you looked on the list of what was published about what was considered chronic illness, Alzheimer's and dementia wasn't on there. It was, it was the Parkinson's, it was the COPD, it was a cancer. But we didn't have the acknowledgement of dementia challenges 23 years ago. And so I started the caregiver support group and then it went from there. If you don't mind, I'm gonna jump ahead 20 years. I stayed with my mom, as I said earlier, and she slowly developed the the early stages of dementia by the time she was about 90. She lived to be two months short of 99. Uh, The last two years, I did have to put her in a memory care center. But it was during that time, I realized I was now the hidden victim. I was the dementia caregiver that did not have the support system set up financially, physically, mentally, emotionally. And quite frankly, when you're a caregiver, that's all you have time to do. I didn't have time to research or do a lot of thinking about it. After her death, I thought, I don't want any caregiver for dementia and Alzheimer's to be in the same shape I was in, which led me to start writing books.
1: Uh, what helped you, you know, to maintain your sense of sanity?
2: <laughs> well, that may be questionable about whether I retained it or not. Um, I've, <laughs> I've always had a, a really good sense of humor, and so that that helped quite a bit. I think the biggest thing, though, was my mother was my best friend. And I am very fortunate that she didn't go into some of the really negative traits that sometimes happen with dementia. She never became aggressive. Uh, She was the, the kind, sweet, loving person with dementia that she had been before. So I think that helped. And then I did have some friends, but again, I just didn't call on them as much because i I thought I was a superwoman that could take care of everything.
1: What are some of the tips, you know, if there's a caregiver listening to you now, what are some of the tips they can do, you know, to to cope?
2: Well, if you'll allow me, I'm going to start with, with the first book I wrote, which you mentioned. It's called Visiting with Love, Productive Activities for Memory and Elder Care Residents. And I'd like to give you the background. That book, was written in anger. When my mom was at home and then when she was in the memory care center, I was angry at the family, the friends, her church family that did not come to visit. And and I just didn't understand it for so long until I finally realized that it wasn't from lack of love. It was from lack of knowledge. I had the same experience when I went in to see mom. I would go in and think, oh, we have we have 60-something years to share, and then get in there and realize she didn't have the memories, and she didn't have the, the background for for us to relate in that way. And after about five minutes, you're ready to go. And so I thought, well, if this is happening to me, this is happening to other people. So I I wrote the first book to prepare them for activities you can do when you go see the Alzheimer's patient. It starts with the, the magic of touch. I wish I had taken more time to give my mother hand massages, but uh, just something simple to brush her hair. Uh, I know she loved having her, her fingernails done. But I didn't consciously realize, even with my background as a counselor in hospice, how important it was to have that touch. I continued with talking about music. Now, at least this I knew. She always loved music. But I never took her music personally. I would take her down to the gathering points in the nursing care center where they would have a a musician come in. But. Later, I realized that I could have taken her her own favorite music and just listened to her with listened to it with her. I talk about the joy of accomplishment. Even though they have dementia, they still want to be independent. They want to be felt, be useful. I was in a uh, exercise class this week, a chair exercise, and one of the members in there is dementia. And I went up to her after the class and said, oh, you are such a good dancer. You have such good rhythm. And I just enjoy being in class with you. And her face just lit up because she felt acknowledged. And then I talk about the power of movement. And also, I give a lot of thought to the intimacy of being present. Mm. To not looking at or watch if we're going to be there, don't be thinking about what we're going to be doing when we leave. If you're going to take the time to visit, give them the love that you want to convey to them. So that was that was book book one, Doctor Saul.
1: Yeah, I like that you you really have practical examples there. Uh, like let's unpack a little bit, like listening to music you know, what are some of other activities instead of playing music either on the tape or from YouTube? uh, How can uh, music be incorporated to residents, especially in dementia care units?
2: Oh, I have have now a goodie bag because I love doing presentations. I call it Visitation 101. And I'll actually take my goodie bag and show people what they can take in to a nursing care center. And yes, it might include the CD or it might include the the phone, but it also might include the musical instruments uh, that you pick up at the the dollar store that they can beat on a drum. It, it could be as simple as pennies in a coffee can that they can rattle and beat to the music. So it doesn't have to be anything expensive or elaborate. Something to allow them to keep the beat, and within that same You can combine the beauty of music with the power of movement. We all grew up singing songs like Itsy Bitsy Spider and doing the hand motions of of going up the, the spout or I'm a little teacup. Well, those are all songs that are in their memories. And you start doing the hand motions and they'll follow along. And by the way, I'm sure your readers probably already know this, but the sense of music is in the part of the brain that is the very last part of the brain to to fail with Alzheimer's. So music is how we connect with them the longest.
1: I like that. And also apart from music, I've noticed um, in some patients uh, how video therapy uh, helps, you know, tapes of you know old home videos. Sometimes they like to see that too.
2: Oh, they'll sit for hours and look at it.
1: <laughs>
2: but you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna say one thing that goes back to the intimacy of being present. Yeah. Is I've seen too many times where people go into a memory care center or, or have their loved one at home and they stick them in front of the TV and put on a CD. And even if it's old family photos, and I hope that they will also understand how important it is. It is for them to sit there and watch and laugh and clap and say, oh, look at that. And it, it makes the experience so much more powerful.
1: Yeah. You know, let's revisit the part where you said when your mom was sick and her friends and people from church, uh, either they came or rarely came. And part of that, you said, is because of probably the lack of knowledge uh, not knowing what to say, what to do. Uh, But I like the aspect of being a supportive presence. You really, sometimes you don't have to say much. You can hold a hand, you can read a poem. So really, I think people underestimate the power of supportive presence.
2: Oh, it's it's so powerful. You nailed it right on, just spot on. Yeah. Well, let me share my favorite story about that. Mom's in the Memory Care Center and, and... most of them are built where the rooms are in a U uh, formation and the end of the U empties back into their lobby or their dining room. That was the way mom's was. And I came in one day and she was coming, rolling down the hall and she saw me and she said, well, look who's here. I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> and I, saw, I just sat down in, in the lobby chair. and. It was a very active day for her because she didn't stop. She just rolled right past me and then started going around the U shape again. I knew where she was going to end up, exactly where I was. So in a little bit here, she comes rolling down the hallway again. And she said, "Ah, when did you get here? It's so good to see you. Totally didn't remember I was there five minutes ago. Yeah. Okay. And then once more, she kept going, kept going round the hue. This time when she came down the hall, she said, where have you been? I've been looking all over for you. Now, some people might say the visit was of no value because she didn't remember for five minutes. Mm-hmm. But I'm telling you that every time she saw me and her face lit up with joy and, and pleasure, that that made that visit worth it. Emotions last a lot long longer than memories do, and her emotion of being happy carried her through that day.
1: With that, we'll take a little break and we'll be right back. Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Soley and we continue our conversation with E.J. Wyatt. Your second book is Communicating with Love, Creating Joyful Conversations with Memory Care and Elder Care Residents. What was the motivation behind that book?
2: There are so many simple tips on how to create a more engaging interaction with your dementia loved one that I I went through, and it's made up of, of probably 20 tips. It starts from the very moment you're even deciding to go in and preparing taking things with you to stimulate conversation or attention but also preparing your nonverbal so that when you walk in and they see you and you light up and they'll light up because your nonverbals looking at them establishing contact says i am here to see you because i love you now one of the things that happens with uh, people, especially in dementia uh, memory care centers, is it gets to be close to a an holiday, and so all the family comes in from home, or or comes in from uh, long distance, and somebody comes up with a bright idea. Oh, let's everybody, all twenty of us, go see grandma. Grandma is overwhelmed. There's kids running here and yonder. There's Adults having many conversations with themselves, the noise level is is raised, it becomes so overwhelming. And then you think, oh, well, grandma didn't really enjoy that visit very much. Well, it's because it was too much. So one of the things I encourage families is go one or two at a time, more visits, not more people. Other examples, People tend to talk to the dementia patient in baby talk, and that's so disrespectful. They are adults. Now, you don't need to bring out your five-syllable words or ten-syllable words. You don't need to have the biggest words. You need to keep your speech plain, and you need to keep it shortened. Your sentences probably need to have five words. But but don't humiliate them by treating them like, like babies. Uh, and one last tip I'll, I'll give you from the book is to gesture when you're talking. When If you were talking to me and you say, look over there at that woman with the red hat on, I could immediately turn because right now my cognitive ability is pretty good. And so I could instantly identify woman and identify red and identify hat and see instantly what you're talking about. But with the dementia patient, it takes them longer to process. And so instead of just saying, look at that woman with a red hat, isn't it pretty? Gesture at her so they can follow your lead and look over there and have a head start on figuring out what you're looking at. Mm. So the book is full of of practical suggestions to enhancing communication.
1: So let's talk a little bit about uh, end of life issues in Alzheimer's and dementia care. Uh, What have you found to be some of uh, the major issues, especially when they're nearing death?
2: I'm going to ask you if you've noticed this, that because we worked with hospice and we've been in it for so long and we know all the ins out, does it sometimes surprise you when you get into an end-of-life decision-making period of time and, and the caregivers don't know what the doctors are talking about no. or how the procedures work? This is what prompted book three that I'm just finishing on end-of-life decisions I guess I thought because I knew it everyone knew it but last year I was with a friend uh, at the with her at the hospital with her mother mother was 96 mid stage uh, dementia COPD and my friend came out just shaken because she said the doctor presented me with a do not resuscitate order for for CPR and, and it was beyond her comprehension why they wouldn't do that. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I've known this for 20 years, why wouldn't she? And so I, I took the time to explain to her about the low percentage res- uh, resuscitation with the older people, the, the chance for breaking bones, And then we talked about quality of life. Is it worth keeping someone alive that doesn't have a positive quality of life? Mm. And so after that experience, I I tell you, this book wasn't real fun to write, The Guide to End-of-Life Decisions, because it's kind of a downer subject from communicating and visiting. But I felt it was very important to address the different methods And also to maybe put personal spin. I don't want to say giving my opinion or subjecting the readers to how I think they should do it. But giving them questions to determine if keeping antibiotics going when a person is in final stage Alzheimer's is valuable to their quality of life wishes. And, and so I go through each one, and I say, okay, this is what happens, and then let's consider specifically what it means for a person with dementia. Well,
1: that, would will take a little break, and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness Helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information, resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI Helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info@nami.org.
1: I'm Saleh Berman. We continue our conversation with E.J. Wyatt. Your third book is not out yet, but it is about to be released. The title is Dementia Caregivers, Making Loving End-of-Life Decisions. So talk to us, um, especially we are in hospice care. What does hospice care look like for Alzheimer's and dementia patients?
2: Well, chapter two is totally about hospice. I tried four different times to get my mother admitted on hospice and she was she was too congruent she could not pass the the federal mandates and so part of my chapter on hospice is to talk about what the what the mandates are and when you can bring hospice in and then the rest of the chapter is certainly focusing on on the tremendous value and help to the family from having social workers, from having chaplains, to having the registered nurse, to having a hospice doctor, to having the CNAs to help for them to bring in supplies, to bring in medicine, and goes all the way to the end, keeping the person out of pain, letting them them die with grace and dignity, and then offering bereavement support to the family. All of those are so important. And in my book, I'm gonna tell another another little story. When I was back at hospice, I had a, a person come in for counseling and it was her son, 20 something year old son that had been hurt in a motorcycle accident. Now, when I say hurt, the only physical signs were bruises on his knuckles. The majority was a traumatic brain injury. And he didn't even have to have a ventilator, but he was he was brain dead. He was gone. He was a mere shell. Induced to a horrible, horrible situation with the family insurance, he was not eligible to go into assisted living. And they took him into uh, the family home where the young wife, with her small child, had to feed him through tubes, had to turn him, had to change him had to do everything for him because he could breathe, but there was no other function. And after three years, the wife finally decided to stop artificial hydration and nutrition with the help of of hospice workers. But the mother came to me and said, how can I let my daughter starve my son? And so that gave me the opportunity to, first of all, again, talk about quality of life not just for the son, but also for his child and for his wife, and then go through withholding artificial hydration and nutrition is simply doing what the the body can't do for itself. What they were doing is not natural. It's not what the body wanted. The body wanted to let go. And after the mother gave that a lot of reflection, she was able to be with her son as they provided those measures, and he died very peacefully seven days later. Mm.
1: Powerful story. Um, What is the uh, importance of visitation, especially during end-of-life care for Alzheimer's and dementia patients?
2: In the book, it talks about active dying and how some people think that their loved ones should not be alone when they die. And so I address situations like that and say, it's, it's not your choice. I know of situations where the actively dying person waited till everybody was out of the room yeah. to pass on because that's what they wanted. Yeah. Or they, we know, certainly, you know, as a chaplain, how many times people will hang on waiting for that one person to get there from overseas just so they can feel or say a goodbye yeah. so we've got to understand in the act of dying dying it's it's okay to tell them they can go but mm. we are not in charge of what's going on yeah and give it give it over to the higher power
1: well said Thank you. So, what are your final
2: thoughts? I have so many thoughts. I'm 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 getting real close to turning the big 7-0. And I probably have five to six more books I want to write. I'm working on book four, which is going to be called Dementia Caregivers Need a Break and How to Set Up Respite Care. I have so much I want to share. It's not, these aren't necessarily things I knew when I was going through it on my personal walk with my mom. They were things maybe I learned later that I wish I had known. But the goal of all my books is to be very short, give very concise information in a friendly way, but allow the caregiver to be able to address the problem they're having. And find, find a suggestion real quickly for them to follow. I know that I, was, I tried when I was a caregiver to read what book I consider a Bible of dementia caregiving. But, it, you know, it's 400 pages long. I never could get past one chapter before I had to get up and help mom in some way. So I'm trying to make my books very short and very specific to a certain topic to give caregivers the most help I can give them.
1: Thank you very much.
2: Oh, thank you. Such a pleasure being with you. I, I love sharing my passion, and and obviously I love anybody related to any form of hospice.
1: That was E. Jen Wyatt. Uh, thank you for listening.
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.